Thank you for listening to our church podcast where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. Most of the sermons will be preached by our founding pastor, John Cole. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m. for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Psalm 90. I'm looking forward to seeing how this psalm helps us magnify our need for God in our life. But first, I'll ask you the question, have you ever been pressed for time? Ever been there where you felt like you were intensely focused on something because you just didn't have enough time to get done what you knew you had to get done? Sometimes you find yourself like amazing yourself when you're, when you're in that moment, how much you can get done in that short amount of time. Other times you find yourself falling short and feeling like there's no way I can get all this done. Have you ever sought out wisdom and help because you were in a moment like that? Where you were pressed trying to get something done within a short amount of time and you could not accomplish it all. And so you sought out wisdom, help, recruited others, tried to get people involved, tried to learn ways to get better at what you were doing. So there's got to be a better, faster, more effective way. Have you ever pled for mercy regarding a shortcoming or a deadline before? Like asked, hey, could this be extended? Because I can't make this. I need more time. Have you ever asked God to help you with your efforts when you needed him and you knew you just couldn't do what you had before you without his help? Have you ever been surprised how much you could pack in when it was urgent? And afterwards you look back and like, I have no idea how all that got fit in into that amount of time. On the flip side, has time ever went really slow for you? going on and on, like when the pa- the preacher keeps going on and on and on. Oh, don't say amen there. Come on now, help me. Or how about when you anticipate something and it draws out? Maybe kids, you, you can't wait for your birthday to come up. It's coming and you're waiting and waiting. Johnny's is going to be a whole year from today. So, you know, he's waiting and, you know, after, after the birthday's done, then it's a year from now. And you know how many times have the kids said when they're thinking of something that they want, they go, Oh, could, could, can I get that on my birthday? It's like, that's like typically David who does that. It's like, this is eight months away, son. Are you, are you sure your birthday is the right time for this? Maybe we need it a little sooner. But that, that anticipation and it takes really long. And when you're young, a lot of times, those things, things can take a long time, you know. You're in school, and you can't wait for school to be done, for summer to happen, and now the kids are all back in school, and all so excited. You can hear it on their voices. They're very happy about that. But then you have, when you're, you know, as time goes on and you get older in life, it comes around really fast. It's like, oh, wow, it's it's already, school's out, and so you got to do things with the kids and have things arranged. Of course, I, I think when we get a lot of snow, a lot of snow in the winter, winter drags on, huh? Anyone else feel like that? It's like, okay, how long is this winter going to last? Suffering. How about, have you ever been in suffering before and it seemed like it just would never end? 
It's like you're just going through something hard and it's like, okay, wave after wave after wave. And you're like, okay, is this ever going to end? And the time just goes on and on and on. Or how about monotony where you just, you had to do something really monotonous. Uh, maybe it was a job that you were, you were given or that you do, or maybe it was kids, you were given work at home, whatever. And it's just going on and on and on. You know, I heard about a husband who once said he had been married for 45 years. And with a big smile on his face, he said it's, it seemed like only five minutes underwater. How many of you heard that one before? Just consider how those two last words drastically change everything underwater. If he said, been married 45 years, and then it felt like five minutes and stopped, it would have been, oh, how sweet. But then when you add the underwater, it's like, you know, it was torture, you know, it was lasting forever. And, and those two words bring in a condition that made the same amount of time drastically different because of the condition that you were in. Moses was writing this psalm, and it's one of three psalms that he wrote, but it's the only one that's in the book of Psalms. He wrote one in Deuteronomy, one in uh, Numbers, but this is the only one he wrote in the Psalms. And uh, Moses was, we believe, the oldest writer of the Scriptures. And so this was an old psalm, yet it's not in the beginning. It's the 90th one, so it was arranged like right in towards the middle. Moses is writing this psalm, and he had experienced, this is likely in the latter part of his life, he'd experienced 40 years in Egypt, growing up in Egypt, uh, in the household of Pharaoh. That, that, what an amazing experience. Pharaoh was, uh, the most powerful, uh, person in the world at that time, the known world at that time. Uh, it was, uh, a wealthy place, a powerful place, and Moses lived in his home as an adopted son. But then after 40 years, then he spent 40 more years out in the wilderness being a shepherd. And nobody known what he was doing, who he was. He went from being an important person to some person out in a desert somewhere, just growing up and learning, learning God and uh, learning anonymity and learning how to be a shepherd. God had plans for him. Because in his last 40 years of his life, he spent them leading the people of Israel, again being a shepherd, but a shepherd of a lot of people, about 1.2 million, possibly over 2 million. Many people he was a shepherd for, leading them through a wilderness. God's people leading them out of Egypt toward the promised land, he himself never getting to go there. What experiences Moses had. Each of those, I just said it in a short amount of time. But for Moses, those 40 years were 40 years. Each section. 40 years on the backside of a desert and, and shepherding. 40 years of leading people that would complain day in and day out and, and having problems and doubting God and he saw hundreds of, of thousands and likely over a million people die during the time that he was leading them through a wilderness. Because when he brought them to the point of the promised land, 
uh, most of them doubted and chose not to go where God had told them he would enable them to go because they were afraid to go there. And they were afraid that, that, that God would not be able to help them with it because there was enemies that were so big and so strong that they would surely die. And so they were afraid to go where God had them go. And so they, they went back into and stayed in the wilderness. And that generation, if they were tw- over 20 years old, they were, they were not going to go into the promised land, God told them. And so they wandered and wandered, and people died and died. But Moses was alive during that time. So can you imagine during that time in the wilderness being involved with or at least observing so many people die, so many funerals, so many people go off? I I would think those 40 years went on and on and on for Moses. The people of Israel had grieved both Moses and the Lord God over and over again. If you read about them in the book of Exodus, you see where they just doubted God. They distrusted him. They feared to enter the promised land, as I mentioned. They also created and worshiped idols while Moses was meeting with God, getting the Ten Commandments, the famous Ten Commandments. While he was there meeting with God, uh, it, it went on so long that the people said to Aaron, you know, let's make an idol and worship an idol. And the whole story is crazy because when when Aaron has to answer for himself, he says, well, I just threw this gold into the fire and out came a calf. It's like, wow, okay, so just a calf just appeared and came out of the fire for you. They began worshiping idols in addition to God and, and breaking the very commands that Moses was bringing down. Thou shalt worship uh, uh, the Lord God as one God, and thou shalt worship him only. Thou shalt have no idols. They're breaking the very commands he was bringing down while he was getting them from God. They're breaking them because they wanted to go back to what they had in Egypt. They had brought some strangers with them, some people that that their heritage was to have false idols and to worship them and pray to these things that you create. We naturally like to worship things we see. We don't see God. And so we can only please God by faith. Faith is how we can see what we don't physically see. But we always like to gravitate back to uh, trying to worship something we can see. And that's what they're trying to do. Of course, when you have uh, people that you care about that are with you that want that, you naturally want to give in, and that's the kind of thing that they did. But it had been very frustrating. They doubted God's ability to provide for them. They lusted after the way of Egypt and wanted, wanted what they used to have in Egypt while they're in the wilderness. They almost revolted against Moses. That was a hard place for Moses to be, and I would think... There were times where it went on and on, and that 40 years might have felt like it was 100. Sometimes he had so much burden on him as a leader that he he just felt like he couldn't do it, and he got advice from his father-in-law, and he made changes, but it was a difficulty. For Moses, this experience had to seem like forever, but not so forgotten. For God, it was it didn't go on and on. For God, it wasn't like, when is this going to be done? When am I going to get through this? For God, he was right there all along. But God exists outside of time. God exists in the past, the present, and the future eternally. 
God created space, matter, time, and universal laws for us to dwell inside of. But he doesn't need them. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the, the, the earth. In that beginning, when God created this, he created time, matter, space. And eventually he created all of creation there in Genesis as it's described. While God was doing this, God is existing outside of it. He actually doesn't need the dimension of time. He doesn't need matter. He doesn't need space. He, he is ever-present. He fills all space. He doesn't need space. And so God is ex existing outside of all of this while it is happening. But while Moses is there going through growing up in Egypt and then being in the backside of a desert and then leading the people of Israel and all these challenges, God's existing outside of it. And he has actually already seen the end from the beginning. It's all enveloped inside of this this uh, forward uh, uh, linear time, but God already knows the end from the beginning and he exists outside of when time ever existed. God is beyond our comprehension. Just talking about that right there is like, how does that work, right? I don't know exactly the best way to describe it. One way I think is to, if you were to picture yourself, if you're watching a movie or a show and you can fast forward and you can see all of the frames and you know the beginning and the end, but you're not inside that frame. You're not inside that, that at all. You're not stuck inside there. I guess an illustration to give is you can, you could forward through and pat, uh, and go back and forward and you can see at any time, any moment of it. But the people there, they're stuck in that. They're in a linear time, but you're not, you're not, you're not in that. You're outside of that. God is beyond our comprehension. Someone asked me once, uh, even about, I've talked about with a number of people, like how would God have emotions about something in the Bible? You read it in the scriptures, you read the Old Testament, how you would have emotions if he already knows the end from the beginning. But the Bible does describe him as, as having personality, having emotion. And he made us in his image, yet without sin. And so... With that about God, have you ever re-watched a movie before? And you knew what was going to happen? And you knew how it was going to end? And ladies, you cried at that moment anyways? Or guys, you cried at that moment because someone got killed and it was a, you know, it was a, it was a soldier and he was in battle. Or you laughed about something. Or you got bothered by something. And you watch it and you're like, I've already seen this before, but you still laughed. Why'd you laugh? You still cried. You already knew it was going to happen. Why are you crying for? My wife, what she'll do is she'll just start laughing so that she doesn't cry. So it's coming up and all of a sudden I hear going, <laughs> and I'm like, you're about to cry, Martha. Just go for it. Just go for it. And she'll cry. But God still interacts with us. He's not stale and distant. But he is beyond what we experienced. God is super natural. Super is above and beyond. Natural is the state of things in nature. God is above what is the state of nature. Sometimes people say, well, how can God do that? And, oh, it's the God gap. You ever heard anyone talk about that before? If you can't explain something, well, 
well, you people that believe in God, you just plug God in there. Well, the problem about trying to argue against that is that God is not confined by the natural. He created it. He created gravity. He created time. He created thermodynamics. He created math. He created DNA. He created all these things. And so he is outside of that. God is beyond our comprehension. Consider some attributes of God before we get into the psalm that is elevating our need of God and how he is greater than these kind of things that we're talking about here. Consider some attributes of God as talked about in the scriptures. We won't do a Bible study. I'll just list some. First, you have God, some of God's moral attributes that describe his nature. These are things like he is holy. He's love. He's just. He's true. The list could go on and on. There's a big word for you, okay? So if you, if you don't care about it, just, just let it go by. But some people might like it. But those are what some people call those moral attributes are communicable attributes. Those are attributes of God that are able to be shared by me and you. We can be love. We can be just. We can be holy and work towards, uh, and by God's grace, be holy. Not as holy as him. Not as just as him, but we can share those. But then you also have metaphysical attributes. Uh, That's another big word. Those are the incommunicable attributes of God. These are things that me and you, we can't share about God. They are attributes that we talk about with God. These are not parts of who God is. These are just descriptions of his nature. Give you some words here. Now, just hang on with me for a minute, okay? One of the words is eternal. That's not too bad. God is eternal. So he is outside of time. He is infinite. He can fill everything. There is no limit of God. He's infinite beyond being eternal, everlasting, never having a beginning, never having an end. We can't even fathom it. He is infinite. He can fill everything. There's nothing that he can't fill. Talk about how big all of space is and how there's galaxies and it's so big. And the Bible says that his hands span the earth. And the Bible teaches that the heavens declare the glory of God. You say, well, if the, if the, if the heavens are so big, why, why would God make them so big if we just needed earth? Well, for one, to have a kind of earth that we have, we have to be protected by a lot of that universe that he created so we could actually have the fine-tuned earth to live in. We couldn't have an earth without so many. I think I just, Malachi, I think you just shared a video by uh, Prager University that put out, and they talked about how it's gone up and up and up and even more, where it's increased to five, over 500, I think, over 500 different factors of fine-tuning of our earth that we have to have. And if you don't have any of those fine-tuned correctly, you can't live on the earth. It's pretty interesting. But God, God did all that, but he is infinite, But as big as the space and all that is, God's so much bigger. He's incomprehensible. He's incomparable. You can't really give a description of God and say, "Mm, let me try to help you understand God, and let me give you an example of God. You can't really give a description that is comparable of God because there's nothing that compares to him. He is immutable. That means unchanging. God, his character, who he is, doesn't change. Now that's important. 
Because if we worship God because He's loving today, if He was not unchanging, as the Bible describes, what could He be down the road? You and I, we could be loving today, we could get hurt, and then we could stop being loving. But God, because of who He is, will always be love and will always be holy because it's part of His nature of who He is. He's immortal. He is beyond what we are physically. He's omnipresent everywhere at all times. He is omniscient. This is the God is described in the scriptures. Omniscient meanings he knows all things, everything. He knows it all. He is omnipotent, omnipotent. He's all powerful. He could speak things into existence. There is nothing that can compare with the power of God. He is self-existent. He needs nothing. He is self-existent. He can exist without anything else. He is self-sufficient. Takes care of himself pretty fine. He is sovereign in complete control. And there is no one that can throw him off or his plans. And he is Trinity. He is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's also part of how he is self-existent. He never needed us for a relationship, didn't need angels for a relationship, because the Father always had the Son and always had the Holy Spirit. He always had relationship. Those are some descriptions that you, those are, those, you could go through the Bible and learn about these attributes of God. But as we describe those, can you see how there's, there's not really anything else that can compare to who God is? And sometimes we try to box God in and put him in our box world. And we want to understand everything that's going on in our life. And we want to say, God, why wouldn't you do this? And we have to keep in mind that this is God. He's so much greater than what we are. We have to be careful trying to put him in a box, almost like we could teach God. Because we want to do that sometimes with our life. We want God to see it our way. And prayer is that opportunity where we get to do that. We get to communicate and say, God, this is what I see. This is my perspective. But we have to keep in mind while we pray and talk with him that we say, but I understand your perspective is a lot bigger. But prayer is the opportunity to do that. Psalm 90 magnifies our need for God. Psalm 90 magnifies our need for God. He's beyond our comprehension. We need him, and he's made himself available to us. Today, after having the New Testament, we know he's made himself available fully through Christ. But Psalm 90 lets us listen in as Moses describes how big and great God is, and then he prays. And so as we get into this chapter, we get to actually listen in on a prayer of Moses to God. And we get to see him saying to this God who is so great things he needs of him. And we're going to find three primary things that Moses says, Lord, I need this of you. Before we do that, we'll first see some of how he describes how God is beyond us. And we're going to see him describe three things here, God's eternality, man's frailty, and God's just judgment. The first 11 verses, we're going to jump in and look at those. And we're going to see him describing God being eternal. Seeing him describe how we are, men and women, are frail. And that God's just judgment of sin is a true reality. 
Look with me, if you will, in Psalm 90. We'll begin with the first two verses, and here we'll see God is eternal and he's timeless. Some of the attributes we described a few moments ago. Psalm 90, verse 1, says, Lord, again, this is God using Moses to write, Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Here we see God being eternal and existing from everlasting to everlasting. Isn't that exciting just to think about and even hard, hard to comprehend? How does someone never have a beginning and never have an end? That's God. He is from everlasting. He is to everlasting. So Moses starts out as he's writing here, and he's, he's saying that we have depended on you, we've dwelled in you in all generations, we, we have needed you, and before the foundations were brought forth, uh, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, before you made the world, you've always been here, ready for us to dwell in and need and depend on. There's never been a time where we needed God and God was not there. God is everlasting. God is eternal. Then Moses goes on to talk about how God justly judges our sin. And in that, he describes the frailty of human beings and how we have a reality of sin and death. And God is just in bringing wrath about those matters. So let's look at verse 3. It says, Thou turnest man to destruction and sayest, Return ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with a flood. There is a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. We are consumed by thine anger and by thy wrath we are troubled. Here David is writing to this everlasting God, and he is describing how we, because of sin, God's wrath has brought the curse of sin, death, and with that we die. We're not everlasting as he is everlasting. He talks about how the grass grows up, and it looks so beautiful. And then the next day you come and it's been cut. Someone cut it down. And these wonderful, that's kind of like our life where we grow up and we think everything about our, our life and it looks beautiful and it's tall and it's green and it's nice. And then it's cut down. Next. And then you have the next row of grass growing. And generation after generation, people have grown up. It's cut down. Okay, next. Next generation come up. And it keeps going. And Moses was experiencing that himself, seeing what he's describing here, death. Mankind returning back to where they were first created and dying and seeing that God 
to him, to us, those 40 years, those years of living and the dying, oh, it was long. We had hard days and we had short days. And, but to God, oh, a thousand years are like a day. Verse 4. So he's, he's describing how our, our picture of our reality is so different than God's. But he still cares about it. He's not distant. He's not this uh, um, distant deist out there, God, that, that, that doesn't care about what we're going through. It's just that what to us seems so long and so hard to him, it's, it's, well, I've already went, I've already, I'm outside of all of that. So we see as we can keep reading more of this description of our frailty. Verse seven, we are consumed by thine anger and thy wrath. Are we troubled? Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. Here we're seeing him describe how God, there's nothing we can hide from him. He sees everything in our life. He sees we're naked before him. We are fully open, transparent. God knows our, there's no secrets with God. He sees everything. He's omniscient. He knows everything. So he's describing God as one that knows everything about us. And because God is completely holy and just, sin must be uh, uh, met with. It must be dealt with. But we also know that God is gracious and merciful, as we'll come to later on. But it's important to understand these different uh, subjects or these attributes of God separately, but they can't stay separate. They have to be connected. His holiness, His justice, is why there's a penalty for sin. That's death. And that's why bodies die and why generations don't just go on and on forever. And so he's describing this and he says that God sees, you see all of our iniquities. And again, Moses here is lightly looking back and he's thinking about the people he was leading through the wilderness and how many of them, they, they were distrusting of God. And they were unwilling to follow where God wanted them to go. And they tried to rebel against what God had. And some of them even tried to hit, hide things and uh, fr- uh, like Achan and try to hide things that they stole. And all of these things that had been experienced, he's looking back and saying, God, you knew about it all. And then as we keep reading, it says in verse 9, For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten, which would be seventy. And he says, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore, which is eighty years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. He, he's, just, he's just saying, you know, hey, it, it, we should hopefully get around seventy years. For strong, maybe we'll get eighty years. But it, we know it's gonna come to an end at some point. He's just talking about this reality that a lot of times we don't like to talk about. Well, Moses is saying we're frail. And you know our frailties, God. You know everything about us. And you love us anyways, because he'll come to that in a little bit. But he's pointing out here how he knows us. And we're frail. And the things that we aspire for and try to achieve, try to make it 80 years, 
90 years. You know, try and make a little bit more. To, he's saying to God, it's, it's not very much different, you know. 70, 80, 90, 40. It's not a big difference because he's from everlasting to everlasting. Verse 11, who knoweth the power of thine anger, even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. And he's, he's talking about God's judgment. It's vital that we keep ourselves in perspective that God is great, he is big, he is powerful, and that also what he says does matter, and that our sin problem is a problem, and that there is judgment and wrath about it. But thankfully, the Scriptures don't end there, and neither does Moses. So we see first that Moses describes God's eternality, that God is eternal, man's frailty, and also God's just judgment of sin, keeping in mind that his judgment is just. How just would God be if he let every person that has brought abuse and damage and sin and harm and killing and murdering and violence and all that in this world and, and then never had to answer to him for it? How just would he be? But also, how just would he be to have categories where he says, well, this that kind of sin, okay, over there has to be dealt with, but your sin of pride, your sin of hate, your sin of gossiping, the, well, that doesn't have to be dealt with. How just would God be if he just didn't make sure that it all was addressed? Wouldn't be just. So just God deals with these matters. And that's what Moses is talking about. So we see God's eternality. We see uh, man's frailty. We see God's just judgment of sin. But now we see Moses' prayer where he prays and he asks God for three things specifically. He asks God for wisdom, mercy, and grace to help our use of time on this earth. And of course, looking beyond this earth, we look to Christ to give us more than just help today. But we look for God to help us to be with Him for eternity. But Moses does talk within the framework of time here. And he asks God in his prayer to give Him wisdom, to give Him mercy. He talks about beauty in here. He asks God to give Him help as He does work. So let's look at this prayer individually. The first one, let's look at where he asks God for wisdom. Verse 12, so teach us to number our what? Our days. First of all, that's a good principle there. Moses is saying, teach us to number our days. We don't have a lot of them. We only have a few, you know. So let's take them seriously and let's not just spend them frivolously. Teach us to number our days. Teach us to, remember we were talking about before, being urgent about something. If we knew the last day of our life, we'd probably be a little bit more urgent because we would know the deadline. Whenever you got those deadlines, you kind of just a little bit more urgent. But a lot of times we just don't think about it. And so we can become a little bit more cavalier about how we spend our days. But if I think about answering to God and I think about uh, that I only have a certain number of days, I'm going to think I need to consider my days more and count my days. But the main emphasis that he gives as he, as he prays goes beyond teaching us to number our days. Notice here he says, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. He says, teach us, God, as he prays, 
Teach us to, to apply our hearts toward wisdom, your wisdom, your ways, seeking what you know and being not just knowledge filled, but knowing how to apply what we know and learn about you to our day to day living and to want to do things according to God's wisdom, not just my wisdom or my desires. Teach my heart to desire after your wisdom and your ways and make good use of my days and time. There was an angel that appeared at a faculty meeting and he told a deacon or a dean there at a college in return for his unselfish and exemplary behavior that the Lord would reward him with his choice of infinite wisdom, wealth, or beauty. Kind of like Solomon got, you know? Do you want wealth? Do you want wisdom? Do you want beauty? Which would you pick? Without hesitating, the dean selects infinite wisdom. The angel responds, done. Disappears in a cloud of smoke and a bolt of lightning. Now all heads turn to this dean. I mean, what would you do if that really had happened? And supposedly... This angel had given them all wisdom. They're all looking and turning, and they're waiting. What's going to come out of his mouth? What amazing words of wisdom will he say? He has infinite wisdom. And so they look at him, and someone whispers and says, Hey, teach us. What do you have to say? He looks and he says, I should ask for wealth. I'm just joking, folks. Man, my punchlines have been bad today. <laughs> that was his wisdom. His wisdom was, I should have picked the other option. But in reality, we ought to be seeking wisdom in our life, applying our hearts unto wisdom. Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 6, it says, For the Lord giveth wisdom. Out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. We ought to seek the Lord for wisdom. We ought to seek the Lord for understanding, not just our own wisdom and understanding, and not just uh, other people that we can read, but actually go to God and say, God, help me to learn wisdom from your word as I read it. And in prayer, God, help me to discern and understand. Holy Spirit, help me. To have wisdom. Proverbs 4 and verse 7 says, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. It says, hey, seek after wisdom. You and I need wisdom to be able to discern between right and wrong. How to apply what we learn and we know. Because life is, you know, life is not, doesn't have a, a, a list of like an instructional for everything you do in your life. Wisdom is taking the things that God helps us learn and then apply it to every life moment that we have. And eternal wisdom is going to point towards how can my life point towards what God cares about? Eternal things. So Moses asks for wisdom. Secondly, not only does he ask for wisdom, but then he goes on to say, Give us mercy that we may rejoice and be glad. Look with me in verses 13 through 15. Give us mercy that we may rejoice and be glad. Verse 13 says, Return, O Lord, how long? 
and let it repent thee concerning thy servants. Now, I'm not sure, because we don't really know what Moses was thinking of when he wrote this, but it leads me to think, just, it's, just a, it's just a thought, that maybe he was referring to when he was coming to God and asking God to repent of what he was considering to do for the people of Israel when after he had met with him and brought down the Ten Commandments and the people of Israel were worshiping false gods and God said, you know what, Moses, I, I think I'm just going to just gonna let them all go. I'm going to start new with you. And I don't believe God really intended to do that. I believe that he just simply was expressing emotions of this is, this is frustrating. Without sin, he, he was just expressing those thoughts it's possible that Moses was referring to that. If not, he's referring to some other incident. Incident, But he says, let it repent thee, God, concerning thy servants. He said, change your mind, please, concerning what your servants, what you think about them, what you're going to do with them. And, and, th- and then he goes on to ask for mercy. He says, oh, satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. He says, make, make us glad according to the days, Lord, that we have been afflicted, we have gone through hard times. Again, Moses and the people of Israel had gone through judgment and difficulty, and he's saying, God, allow me, please, to give us some mercy, please. Help us. Mercy is withholding judgment. There was a mother that approached Napoleon, seeking a pardon for her son, And the emperor replied to her and said, he doesn't deserve mercy. He's committed a certain offense twice and justice demanded death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother pleaded. She said, I plead for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon responded. Sir, the woman said, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Well, then the emperor said, I will have mercy, and he spared the woman's son. Mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. And when we come to God for mercy, we say, God, I know that you see my secrets. I know that you know my frailties. I know that you know those things. But Lord, I know also that you are a merciful God. I know that you you are just, but I also know you can withhold mercy. And I know also, as the New Testament looked into what Christ did, I also know that God poured out his wrath on his son, Jesus Christ. Moses looking forward to God's provision, us looking back to God's provision, but knowing that, God, you are merciful. And Lord, would you please withhold your mercy? I know we deserve judgment, but Lord, I'd like to be able to be glad. I'd like to be able to rejoice. Lord, would you give me your mercy? So Moses prayed and said, God, even though we are frail, we are limited in this life. You are unlimited. Would you share some of that mercy that you have? So Moses asked God for mercy. You know, when's the last time you've ever asked God for mercy? Thought of something in your life and you said, you know, God... I need your mercy about this. You know about it. I know about it. Forgive me and withhold judgment. Please give me mercy. You don't have to, don't hide from God. 
When you do, when you have things in your life that you know are, are not right, don't let those drive you away from God. That's what Satan tries to do. He tries to get you to be, he accuses and tries to get you guilt ridden for you to say, God doesn't love me. God doesn't want me. And the best thing I can do is go hide from him. But listen to the example of Moses' prayer. And instead of hiding from God, which can't happen anyways, Go to God and expose yourself and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you're a saint, you know Christ as your Savior. You are God's child. You still need God's mercy day to day. Don't let your shortcomings influence you to run from God. Rather, let them influence you to come to him asking for his mercy. A New Testament perspective of mercy is Christ's salvation as the ultimate gift of mercy and grace that God lets us rejoice and be glad with God. Look at me, if you will, in some scriptures in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll look at verses 3 through 10 and just see some, some verses about God's mercy to us. Paul is being used to write here. And he says in verse 3, Paul's writing, he says, Among whom also we had our conversation or lifestyle in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So Paul's saying, we among other people, before we came to Christ and we knew Christ, we, we had it in our very nature just problems. We had sin in our very nature, and he's saying this about himself. And so then verse 4, he says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened, that means to make alive. He quickened or made us alive together with Christ. And then he puts in parenthesis there in verse 5, By grace are you saved. You're saved by grace. That's something you don't deserve. Grace is favor you're given that you don't deserve. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, he goes on to say, not only has he quickened us, but he hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. God, by his mercy and his grace, has invited us to be in his presence and to sit with him. Not by our goodness, but only by his Yes, we are frail. Yes, we are limited. But God is not. Verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. God's kindness was given to us through Christ Jesus coming to us. Jesus was God in the flesh who came to give all of who God is to me and you and make himself fully available to us. If we'll believe on Christ, respond to his grace as he convicts and ministers to our hearts. Then he says in verse 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith. So through faith we are saved by God's grace, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So we respond by faith to God's grace, but we do no works that we contribute to add to it. It is the gift of God. Not of works, verse 9 says, lest any man should boast. And then verse 10, for we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That means God created us for good works that he has for us to do, which he hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Paul is writing and he's, he's saying, you know, I was a, I was a sinner. So were you. And I have my baggage. But God, who is rich in mercy and grace, came to us and offered for us to be able to sit in heavenly places and to be with him and to give us his salvation by grace. And then with that salvation, he's got a plan for us to help us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. He's working on us. All of that is God's mercy. Hey, folks, all of that is God's grace. We don't deserve we're, we're frail, we're limited. We don't deserve for the unlimited God, the incomprehensible God, the infinite God, the immutable, unchanging God that we were describing before. We don't deserve for him to just withhold that mercy and say, you know what, I know you've got problems. I know you have frailties. I know you have struggles, but I came to you. And if you will receive me, I will give you mercy. Moses is asking God for mercy. You and I ought to ask God for mercy. We need God's wisdom. We need God's mercy. And then thirdly here, we need God's grace. God's grace. Make your grace evident in our lives and work. Moses is asking God to make his grace, God's grace, his power, his favor, evident in Moses' life and in his work. Look at me in verse 16 and 17. It says in verse 16, Let thy work, God's work, appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. So let God's work that he does appear and be evident and obvious unto thy servant and thy glory, God's glory, unto his children. And let the beauty, the favor, the grace of the Lord of our God be upon us and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. He's saying, God, make your beauty, your favor, your glory, your help be evident on my life. Lord, put your hand, please, on my life. Lord, make it obvious that, that I am yours and you are mine and that you're working in my life. I don't want my life just to be a picture of who I am and, and what I'm able to do, but I want my life to be a picture of what God alone can do for me, in me, on me. But not only on me and in my life, but notice he says, establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. He says, Lord, would you establish the work I'm doing? Hey, your day-to-day living, God, help me to work well with my hands. Help me to use my hands for your glory, my mind, my life. Let me work for you in everything I do and establish it. Help it not fail. So Moses asks for these three things. Lord, give me wisdom. Help me to think the way you think. Help me to apply your teachings to my life. Lord, give me mercy because as we already talked about in the first 11 verses, we are frail and we are limited, but you're not. So naturally, I need your mercy. And then he says, I need your working on my life. I need your hand on my life. I need your grace on my life. 
See God's grace evident in the life and work of another person here. I'd like you to see Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and 10. Now you have Paul writing here, and he's talking about himself, and he says, For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So he's pointing back, and he's saying, Apostle Paul's writing, saying, I don't deserve to be called an apostle, one that saw Jesus and was and ministered to the churches and even wrote the scriptures. And I'm not worthy to be called this, he says. I persecuted the church. I literally tried to kill and did kill people that followed Christ, he says. But notice in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. He didn't give his grace in vain. It wasn't worthless. It wasn't empty. He did it on purpose. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. It's a beautiful picture of Paul doing what Moses is asking God for. He's saying, you know, I don't deserve to do what I get to do, but by the grace of God, I get to do it. And then he says, and I labor. So I labor with his grace. He works, just like Moses was asking for. Be with the work of my hands. Paul is saying, I don't deserve to be what I am. I don't deserve to do what I get to do. I don't deserve to get to work with my hands, but thank God for your grace. And would you please give me the grace to labor and do what you want me to do, please? Notice he says at the end of verse 10, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. The grace of God wasn't doing it all. The grace of God was with him, enabling him to do it. Moses was asking God for wisdom, asking God to withhold judgment, mercy, and he was asking God for grace to help him have evidence of God in his life. Even with the work of his hands, the labor that he would do, that God would bless, and it would be apparent that God is working in him. I think those are three applicable prayers that you and I can make to God as well. I think we can pray and ask God for those same very things because we also are frail, and God also is unlimited, and we need him much. During a British conference on comparative religions, Experts from around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to Christendom, those that follow Christ, the Word of God. They began eliminating possibilities. One person said, what about incarnation? That Jesus came and became flesh among us. Was that unique? Other religions, though, had different versions of God's appearing in human form. You know, like you even have like a, a, some of the Greek uh, um, mythologies and uh, Hercules and things like that. So that it wasn't unique to Christianity. Other religions had different versions of God's appearing human form. What about resurrection? Again, other religions had accounts of people returning from death. So the debate went on and on sometime until a man named C.S. Lewis walked into the room. And he said, what's the rumpus all about? And he asked and heard him reply that the colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions, teachings about God. Lewis responded, well, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. 
After some discussion, they came to a, an agreement that, yes, in fact, grace is what Christianity stands out with. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path or the Hindu's doctrine of karma, the Jew's covenant, or the Muslim's code of law, each of these offers a way to earn God's approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. Love without condition. We end today with just the reality that though God is unlimited and greater than us all, He has unlimited grace to offer. As humans, we are limited and frail, but God is unlimited. And if you're, if you're taking notes at the very end there, I'll just give these to you and we'll come to a close. But as humans, humans, we are limited and frail, but God, He is unlimited. We ought to seek God and ask for His, say them with me, wisdom, mercy, and grace. Wisdom, mercy, and grace. God is rich and willing to give of himself to us, and he has made that clear, especially through Jesus' sacrificial offering for our sin. This passage is not teaching about that particularly, but with a full understanding of the Scriptures, when we look at God's mercy and God's grace, we cannot look beyond the cross. Because what Jesus did there, that sacrificial offering for our sin, is why God's unlimited mercy, His amazing grace, can be available to limited, frail people like me and you. Hey, I'm glad about that. And I'm also glad that I I don't want to try to act like I'm close to God or near God. Remember those descriptions we gave of Him? Infinite, eternal, unchanging. Hey, that's not me. Tomorrow I'll think something different sometimes. We change. Aren't you glad that God is not limited to us? But aren't you also glad He makes Himself available to us? I like that. I want God's wisdom. I want God's mercy. I want His grace, and I, I trust you do as well. Let's bow our heads in prayer today. Lord, we thank You that we can seek you, the unlimited God, and you would make your mercy available, you'd make your wisdom available, you'd make your grace available. Help us not to take that for granted. I've never been offered anything good in this life that comes close to that offer. And Lord, I'm sorry that too many people don't take advantage of that offer and don't respond to your offer. But Lord, I'm grateful that as your children, we have heard your word, we've heard your gospel, and we, we come to you and we want to follow you. And we thank you for your grace. Help us to not take, take it for granted. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed today, just talk to the Lord about how, if you would please, how you want His grace, you want His mercy, you want His wisdom, how you need it. And just keep in mind that our 70, 80, or however many years we have, it's a lot to us. 
and it's meaningful to God. But He is so much beyond it. And he is able to help. Come to God and ask Him for His wisdom, mercy, and grace. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.